interestingly, one of the, one of the core recommendations seems to be for the for the new future system operator that doesn't exist yet, but the ESO is going to morph into the FSO at some point. Um, but for the FSO to produce a strategic spatial energy plan for the FSO to actually effectively for the government to be saying where generation should be located in the country, and that's that's a really big change, isn't it, from from what happens now? Yeah, I guess now you know the UK has a very you know, quite widely celebrated developer-led generation industry. So all of the expertise around planning consents, environmental constraints, um, you know, kind of physical constraints, grid knowledge, um, often sits within developers. Um, and and that, that's probably like a, a resource that we should be quite protective of and quite proud of. So I think it's really key when there are these fundamental reviews that look at reallocating that responsibility, that they don't sort of simply applaud the opportunity for coordination um, at the at the expense of the loss of the expertise. We have seen that elsewhere in kind of coordinated design scenarios, potentially offshore, you know, where the, the, the entity doing the coordination doesn't have a perfect view of the world. They don't necessarily have all of that detailed, kind of perhaps consenting knowledge or technical knowledge. Um, and so the plan that they come up with whilst coordinated is maybe not deliverable. Um, so I, I, I'm intrigued to see how we're going to skill this uh, or staff this FSO with suitably skilled people to be able to make those kinds of decisions. Hello and welcome to the Connectology podcast. Here, Road Knight Taylor's influential team of elite connection specialists and their expert guests help you to better understand distribution and transmission network connections and how to acquire them faster, for less cost and at lower risk. Welcome to the Road Knight Taylor Connectology podcast for another one of our regular news and views episodes. I'm Pete Aston and I'm joined as normal by Catherine Cleary, Nikki Pillinger and Philip Bale. So welcome. Hi, Pete. Hi, Pete. Hi, Pete. So today we're on a team day and we're being hosted at the fantastic Science Museum Library and Archives at Rawton. And we have the privilege to have a tour of one of their new storage facilities earlier this morning that will open to the public sometime next year. And I was struck by the centuries of technological development on display that I guess has led to both the, the convenience we take for granted at the moment, like electricity and also has been the cause of the climate emergency that we're struggling to control now so i guess a, a double-edged sword but a fantastic tool all sorts of interesting things physical storage though in terms of warehouses rather than battery storage yeah <laughs> yeah physical storage massive warehouse really modern uh, amazingly designed okay so we're going to go through um some news and views today uh, i think i'll kick us off so um Yesterday, being the 5th of September, we, Roadnight Taylor, issued a, an open letter to Ofgem, all about asking Ofgem to look at uh, the issue of SGT charging, supergrid transformer charging, uh, that many in the grid community will know has been a, is a massive blocker for generation connections. And we're just urging Ofgem to look at this issue and to, to try and act on it so that the, the blocker is removed and that uh, there's a sensible charging structure in place. So... I'd recommend going on LinkedIn, having a look at that. It's, it's all over. If you search for Road Knight Taylor, I'm sure you'll find our post on that. Yeah, we hope Ofgem are going to give us a, a speedy reply on that. Um, so talking about Ofgem, um, I know that ENA and Ofgem have been busy looking at uh, the issue of security of supply and demand security and that sort of thing. Philip, what's been going on there? 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Pete. Um, so I think there's uh, a letter that's obviously been published from Ofgem back to the ENA response to their initial letter. Um, there's a couple of things in there that's quite interesting. Number one is around access rights, just trying to confirm an understanding in terms of um, what's appropriate in terms of what they've classified as firm and non-firm access right in terms of energy storage reiterating that storage is like a generator rather than demand and just sort of reaffirming the situation. I think ultimately it's good for there to be consistency in the industry that ultimately customers want to have the opportunity of developing cost-effective connections for their scheme that fits within their business case. So I think ultimately it's good if there's more clarity and consistency for people. I do think that they should be very careful around using protected terms in terms of firm and non-firm access in a way that the decode would affirm or would redefine firm and non-firm access in terms of multiple circuits, single circuit, as well as A&M or DERMs in terms of controlling schemes. Ultimately, it should be good in terms of helping customers understand how they can unlock cost-effective connections. I think the one thing that I would like to see from all DNOs is just as much clarity as possible in terms of what that means in terms of risk, when they're turned off, how long they could be turned off for, and ultimately how it could change in the future when there's future upgrades, demand increases, um, changes to the network running arrangements. The, in terms of changing definitions of battery storage demand not being demand not being final demand uh, is that going to require do you think a modification of p2 which is the sort of network security standard i would argue that there's already the capability that some dnos in particular NGED, have been doing for at least the last two years in terms of using the etr 130 clause in terms of them being contracted demand that doesn't need to be returned in terms of abnormal running arrangements m minus one m minus two arrangements I think it would be better if P2 is stronger and more clear and more definitive, which then would hopefully make the individual DNOs more comfortable that they are compliant with P2. I hope that P2 will go further. So P2 slash 9, I hope we'll cover this off really clearly. I think the off-gem response around P2 talks about appropriate diversity of battery storage, and that still leaves an awful lot of uncertainty in terms of what's appropriate. And ultimately, the appropriateness of diversity will depend on the commercial mechanisms that the storage schemes will enter into, which is massively complex and will change significantly over the next one, two, five, ten years. I think it would be good if there's even more clarity in terms of where it's appropriate to contract battery storage out of P2 compliance, where there should be a limit with a set diversity for different types of networks or some worked examples that would help DNOs understand how much storage they should be putting on a network before there's risks. It's obviously inappropriate to have a gigawatt's worth of battery storage on a 2SGT site because even if they're charging it, three o'clock in the morning, they're still going to exceed the thermal rating of a of transformers. So I think ultimately there needs to be some level of clarification, understanding to when reinforcement is needed and when it's not needed. Yeah, good. I, I think it's a change that's been in been needed for five years more. <laughs> I, I, and I, I guess it's 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 really that sort of pain is being felt by demand customers potentially looking to connect in areas which are just sort of saturated with energy storage. One of the Scottish uh, DNOs um, revealed that they think that 
this was just sort of in, informally last week, um, all of their GSPs, with the exception of one, are now <sighs> highly constrained on P2 compliance as a result of energy storage connections. You know, so that, that's that's basically their entire network, you know, so um, very, very timely uh, intervention potentially. And if you take the SSE's network of the Fleet Bramley network, they had a ED2 project, I think it was around £60 million for adding in new 132KB switchboards, new SGTs, which was excluded from that um, to go through to allow them to split what is a very big, complicated network because of P2 compliance, partially driven by battery storage. It may still be the right thing to do, but ultimately it's an understanding of when you should be splitting networks or finding solutions for P2 compliance, and ultimately when it's really not needed, because ultimately the battery shouldn't be contributing to the pure final demand um, sort of assessments in terms of networks. So I've got no doubt we're going to return to this topic quite a few times, probably over the next uh, year or so as as it works its way through um, the various review uh, processes. Um, moving on now, Catherine, I think you've got an update in terms of uh, wind. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think after sort of news headlines and coverage yesterday, we thought it was probably worth touching on whether we're expecting to see more applications from onshore wind uh, in England and Wales. Um, so I think the a couple of kind of points summarised quite well by by Regen and some main um, sort of news outlets and Renewable UK. The change seems to be, you know, fairly kind of nominal um, and still not giving wind uh, developers uh, the same planning process as we have for solar. Um, so the kind of two sticking points that there always were um, ever since um, uh, we sort of had the kind of backlash against onshore wind were um, that you had to have local consent and that potentially a single objector could you know, effectively be deemed to not represent local consent. So one person could scupper an application, um, and the other was that the, the 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 location itself needed to be included in a um, a local authority plan. So it's it's that second requirement that we think has changed. Um, but I think we're we're not holding our breath for a sort of onslaught of either mod apps or new applications for wind as a result of that kind of fairly fairly minor tweak. It feels like maybe a little bit of political wording as opposed to any significant policy change. So in England may not be seeing a, a spate of new onshore wind farms anytime soon, but at least it's a it's a something that's been unblocked that might lead towards um, more onshore wind farms, which is still one of the cheapest forms of energy available. Um, I'm sure there'll be lots of industry groups lobbying for more Would you change. argue this is something that the wind um, industry has been expecting to come for a long time? So there's been a significant number of accepted wind farm connections since 2019, 2020 that's currently accepted at distribution networks, hundreds, multiple hundreds of megawatts that's in that system. So do you think this will be ultimately the um, the unlocker that will do the, um, actually I think it's gigawatts? Um, it is It is huge. You're right, Philip, it's definitely, a, and I suppose it was because there, there has been quite a lot of political flip-flopping on this issue. So, you know, various different prime ministers have campaigned either on the basis of unlocking onshore wind development or on the basis of entirely blocking it. So I think it is very, very much a, a question for political appetites once there is a bit more certainty. And I guess that that kind of parity of planning process between onshore wind and any other onshore renewable or onshore generation um, assets. And then I guess we would expect those schemes to start moving forwards. But it does, it sounds like yesterday's announcement isn't quite that. Yeah, just doing a quick assessment. I think there's been 4.3 gigawatts worth of onshore wind at distribution level since 2020 that's mm. accepted. So ultimately, lots of people have been pinning their hopes that ultimately the planning regulations would be relaxed, which ultimately will make their schemes viable. 
And I guess those developers are hoping that the planning is unlocked before the DNOs kick those schemes out on the uh, missing out on milestones. Yeah, indeed. So, uh, so may, maybe there's sort of those applications against the clock. On the issue of where generation gets connected, uh, just a month ago, the Nick Windsor, who's the new Electricity Networks Commissioner, um, issued issued his first reports containing a whole load of recommendations to try and accelerate delivery of transmission infrastructure and, and so on, sort of hand in hand with lots of the ESOs and the ENA's um, plans that have got going. But interestingly, one of one of the core recommendations um, seems to be for the for the new future system operator um, that is, doesn't exist yet, but the ESO is going to morph into the FSO at some point. Um, but for the FSO to produce a strategic spatial energy plan. Um, for the FSO to actually, effectively, for the government to be saying where generation should be located within the country, and that's that's a really big change, isn't it, from from what happens now? Yeah, I guess now you know the UK has a very, you know, quite widely celebrated developer-led generation industry. So all of the expertise around planning consents, environmental constraints, um, you know, kind of physical constraints, grid knowledge, um, often sits within developers, um, and and that. That's probably like a, a resource that we should be quite protective of and quite proud of. So I think it's really key when there are these fundamental reviews that look at reallocating that responsibility, that they don't sort of simply applaud the opportunity for coordination um, at the at the expense of the loss of the expertise. We have seen that elsewhere in kind of coordinated design scenarios, potentially offshore, you know, where the 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 entity doing the coordination doesn't have a perfect view of the world. They don't necessarily have all of that detailed, kind of perhaps consenting knowledge or technical knowledge. Um, and so the plan that they come up with whilst coordinated is maybe not deliverable. Um, so I, I, I'm intrigued to see how we're going to skill this uh, or staff this FSO with suitably skilled people to be able to make those kinds of decisions. I guess it's also quite a divergence from that sort of very neoliberal market-led attitude of allowing developers to, you know, generation where they think it'll work um obviously developers are normally best best place to actually model the revenues of these generators as well so sort of whether that should sit still with them or whether that should actually be within central government i i would certainly question yeah interesting to see where this is going to go so watch this space uh, and i'm sure we'll be talking about this again at some point nikki you're going to give us now a brief update on the sort of ena technical limits uh, that are starting to be rolled out. A really positive story, I think. Yes. So the ENA have got a three-point plan, and part of that is to um, allow this more sort of first ready, first connected uh, process for delivering connections. So we've had some significant um, announcements from uh, UKPN and Northern Power Grid about their technical limits. So Northern Power Grid have announced they've got five grid supply points, uh, the likely in the initial phase for their flexible connections. Um, technical limits are essentially allowing uh, generators in part four to kind of move ahead of their projected uh, connection dates and connect ahead of reinforcement on a constrained basis. Um, we've got a podcast about this, uh, so we'll talk about that a little bit more in the future. Um, UKPN have also announced their phase 1A and 1B sites. So just quickly, um, UKPN have announced Norwich, Burwell, Raleigh, Braintree, Richborough, Selinge, Ninfield and Bolney as their confirmed phase 1A sites. Uh, customers will be informed about this, we think, around October in terms of um, who will be allowed to connect ahead of um, 
of that reinforcement that needs to be done. Just, just to clarify, this you know this isn't stopping any reinforcement being done. Um, it's just allowing customers to connect ahead of that on a constrained basis using that DERM system that UKPN already have in place. Um, they also have a phase 1B, which is Bramford, Sundon, Pelham and Womenley, which is where a fault level assessment is needed. Um, and they've got several other sites uh, for the future that they will be looking at for technical limits. So watch this space on those ones. Um, haven't heard very much from the other DNOs on this. So um, some more communication from them would certainly be welcome. And also personally, when I've spoken to uh, staff within DNOs, not a lot of them know about the technical limits. So probably some more communication between uh, sort of people making the decisions about these and, uh, you know, the system planners and people actually talking to customers would certainly be a, a welcome addition. So Nikki, I presume that means that GSPs where there's significant accepted, not yet accepted generation that's previously gone through the mod app that's in the part two phase, but ultimately hasn't developed, there'll be significant more opportunity for the DNOs to accelerate schemes in those as opposed to GSPs where most of the generation is already connected and there's less that's in the part two that's accepted, not yet ready to connect? Yeah, certainly. So we're, we're going to do a deeper dive on technical limits in a separate podcast. So um, tune into that one uh, and we'll, we'll literally be recording it after we finish this one. Um, so it should be coming out or might even already be out by the time you're listening to this. Um, okay, moving on to the next topic. Um, I think Catherine is just going to give us a, a, a brief thought on uh LOAs, Letters of Authority for Transmission Applications. Yeah, and this is really brief, um, but just to sort of put it out there, we've discussed it before, um, but this came out as part of Connections Reform. It's part of um, one of the recommendations, actually, of the Nick Windsor report as well, um, that we try and raise the bar um, for grid applications to the transmission operators um, to ensure that, that actually schemes aren't progressing without land parcels, without land consent. Um, sort of latest discussions, this is definitely the implementation detail Details of this are now being discussed in quite a lot of detail between uh, Ofgem and the ESO. So I think we're expecting announcements pretty soon, really, um, on on how that requirement is going to come into place. When, um, how long people are going to be given to, to get LOAs in place? Um, so, um, so it's something to keep a, a, a watchful eye out for. And it'd be interesting to see if it affects mod apps or anything like that, um, or whether it's just brand new applications. I guess we don't know any detail about it at the moment. No, no, but I think all of those questions have been raised. Yeah. Okay. Um, very quick update from me. Um, just in the terms of the government have committed to, in their powering up Britain report that they issued earlier this year, they committed to giving a connections action plan uh, by the end of this year. So we are expecting the government to be working on that. Um, it's probably going to contain similar things to what's already been discussed with the ENA and uh, ESO and so on. Um, but it's going to give a little bit more weight to some of those issues uh, and perhaps a even a bit more impetus to, to push some of those forward. So um, definitely something to watch out for, the, this Connections Action Plan from the government as to what they're actually going to say in that. Uh, and then lastly on news and views for this episode, um, Catherine, I think you're just going to run us through a few cusk mods that um, might sound a bit dry, but could be actually really important. <laughs> I was going to say, if you say anyone who's listening for bedtime uh, bedtime reading, this will really help you drop off. Um, no, there were just there were three cusk mods um, which are 
relatively important for any battery storage developers um, out there um, from a commercial perspective. So um, a couple of these are, well, in fact, all three of them are all around um, how battery storage pays to NUOS, so um, transmission use of system charges. Um, those of you who've gone through and kind of modelled this for some of your sites um, will know that uh, the annual load factor of a um, of a battery storage uh, generator um, it, it acts as a multiplier to determine how much to new you pay. Um, there are two quite significant changes coming into that. The first is that there is a proposal that your load factor will now be based on how much you import and export. It was previously just based on your export. Um, which is a very sensible, you know, potential modification. And um, the second um, is that actually um, we are going to change the way we allocate generic load factors, um, and um, we're expecting a kind of decision on this uh, amendment in September um, to allow generators to nominate their own load factor. Um, so this could really help projects in the first couple of years who who don't kind of fit the standard annual load factor profile of something like a, a big hydro storage scheme, which is is what um, is what's currently used uh, to sort of baseline storage schemes on on the grid. Um, the last one, so, so those, those two uh, modification proposals are, are, are numbers 331 and 393, um, worth having a look, as I say, kind of decisions expected um, fairly soon. Um, then slightly further down the line, um, there is a, a follow-up proposal um, 405, CMP 405, which is just looking at, at kind of slightly more radical locational signals for batteries um, in Tenuos, but, um, but definitely one to have a look at if you are a battery storage developer. And if you're not already, sign up to the Cusk Mods updates and you'll get plenty of spam in your inbox from, <laughs> from the ESA. Just one last piece of views from me um, in terms of the wrapping up. Um, at the moment, there's a lot of work around accelerating connections, trying to unlock barriers, primarily at the distribution transmission um, boundary, also at the wider transmission section. One of the things that I think we'll speak about more and more as time goes on is the resourcing capability of delivering a lot of these projects. A lot of the projects are at 132 kV now. The capability, the competence, project managers, SAPs, construction teams, contractors, detailed line surveys, companies, all of those... Increasingly, our customers are seeing later and later and later connection dates driven by outages and availability of resources. I think there'll be increasingly more focus on the DNOs in terms of have they resourced up appropriately for delivering their capital schemes for ED2, their operational maintenance schemes, but also the significant new connections that are coming both from the generation side of things and also the demand. So I think that's something that's going to be even more scrutiny in the future is whilst they go through the process of the five-point plan, three-point plan of trying to accelerate in terms of access, physically getting these schemes onto the system, I think will be the next area that needs significant working on. Because at the moment, there's some schemes that are seeing significant delays from when they push the button to say, I really want to connect now. And, and you know, we're, we're sitting here in, <laughs> in the UK, but you know, the, we're, we're in a global context and you've just got to look at things like the US sort of Inflation Reduction Plan Act um, that they've got, you know, that, that is pulling huge amounts of resource into the States. Other countries are doing the same. Um, and so, you know, there's massive pressure on resources um, to get that right. Um, that's all from us today. Uh, I just, I didn't mention at the beginning, uh, but where we are sitting here, a few hundred meters away, is a uh, massive, great solar farm, 65 megawatt solar farm, um, that was actually Hugh Taylor's first grid scale solar connection ever 
So it's a bit like coming down memory lane for Hugh being here. So it's, Hugh is very excited that we are here um, at the uh, Science Museum Library and Archives today. It's been great to do this podcast, and um, we hope you tune into our next episode. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Connectology podcast. If you found it helpful, please share it with any of your colleagues or connections you think may be interested. And please do subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your content. You can find out more about our services at roadnighttaylor.co.uk, link in the description, where you can also sign up to our free Connectology newsletter for more news and thought leadership in network connections. If, during this podcast, you found yourself wondering what it would be like to have a Road Knight Taylor connectologist in your life, please do email laura at roadnighttaylor.co.uk to find out how their game-changing skills and insight can change the game for you too.